You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. Today I want to talk about Brexit. For the past almost three years, we've managed to avoid having to get into any sort of detail in regard to Brexit, but as the date approaches, it's probably time we had a look at what Brexit means for Irish employment law and practice. As you'll see, I don't really expect it to have any direct impact on Irish employment law, but there are three particular areas of practice where it is raising issues, where we're seeing clients increasingly asking questions about these particular points. And that's in relation to immigration into and out of Ireland from the UK, as part of the common travel area, in regard to pensions and benefits, and then thirdly in regard to European Works Councils. And to help me with the discussion today, I've asked some of my partners and colleagues to come along and join me. I've asked Deirdre Cummins and Jane McKeever, a partner and senior associate from our pensions practice, to join, Niall Pelly, my employment partner, who also heads up our corporate immigration practice, and Kirsten Turney, an immigration specialist from the same practice, will also be here. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last podcast. In the last podcast, I explained that the draft bill in relation to gender pay gap had been taken off the priority legislation list, presumably because it's not Brexit related. However, on the 8th of March last, International Women's Day, the Cabinet actually signed off on the draft text for the bill so we expect to see that released in the next couple of weeks. I would hope that by the time of our next recording that we'll be in a position to go through this draft legislation in a little more detail, as it has been some time coming. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. Let me turn now to the main topic for today's review, and that's the question of what will Brexit mean for Irish employment law and practice? Once Brexit passes, the UK government will obviously no longer be bound by the various European-level employment law directives, so it will be free to revise its entire employment law framework. There are varying indications as to how far this will go, but one way or another, irrespective of how Brexit happens and when it happens, the UK employment law framework will change. Obviously, that's not going to be the case in Ireland. Together with all the other remaining member states of the EU, we will still be bound by the various EU directives, So I don't actually expect any direct, immediate impact on Irish employment law. Brexit is obviously going to have an impact on the Irish labour market. Since the results of the referendum in June 2016, we've already seen a huge number of financial services providers looking to open up or expand their Irish operations to get ahead of Brexit. And that has had an impact on recruitment in the financial services world. In the many projects we've worked on with clients over the past two years, this has been one of the issues. It will, however, raise some issues in Irish employment law practice, and that's what I want to talk about today. The three areas where we see this having an impact are in regards to immigration into and out of Ireland from the UK as part of the common travel area, pensions and benefits, and European Works Councils. The first of the three issues that I want to look at is in regard to European Works Councils, which I accept is perhaps the least obvious. It's certainly not something that anybody would have given much thought to as the referendum was coming up back in 2016. For those of you not familiar with a European Works Council, 
It's an employee-led representative body set up to promote the exchange of information and communication or consultation between central management of a large employer and the employee representative group. To be clear, it doesn't have the right of veto over management decisions, it doesn't have the right to overturn management decisions, and it's nowhere near as powerful as a local works council as you see in some locations such as Germany, where effectively the employees have a member on the board and are a significant stakeholder in the decision-making process. Not every employer has to have a European Works Council and under the directive, only those employers that have more than 1,000 employees within the EU and have 150 employees or more in at least two jurisdictions can be required to put in place a European Works Council. Even then, not every employer that has those numbers has a European Works Council and it's only those employers that have been requested to establish one that typically will have one. The reason why this is relevant and significant in the context of Brexit is as follows. Under the directive, the governing law for the running of a European Works Council is determined by where the employer has its corporate headquarters. So if, for example, the employer has its corporate headquarters in Germany, well then that employer is going to be governed by the much more restrictive implementation of the directive that you find in Germany, which requires, for example, that the employer actually fund legal action against itself by the European Works Council if the members of the Works Council believe the employer is acting in breach of its obligations hard and all as that is to believe. On the other hand, if you're an employer that's corporate headquarters is based outside of the EU, which obviously would be the case for all of the US multinationals operating in Ireland and across Europe, you have much greater flexibility on this. What the directive applies in this case is that the employer can simply appoint central management from one of its various European locations. That means the employer can appoint the one from the jurisdiction that has the most employer-friendly implementation of the directive. Where an employer fails to make that choice, the directive provides that the default governing law will be the law of the jurisdiction where the employer has the highest headcount. In practice, that could mean, therefore, that even if you are a non-EU-based multinational, but you have the greatest headcount in France or Germany, you will be governed by French or German law which is going to be a lot more restrictive than, for example, UK or Irish law. As the UK implementation of the European Works Council Directive has always been seen as the most employer-friendly, unsurprisingly, a vast number of non-EU-based multinationals have gone for UK law. And at the moment, there are approximately 300 European Works Councils governed under UK law. Again, how this is relevant in the context of Brexit is that post-Brexit, each one of those European Works Councils will now need to identify a new governing law. Irish law was always seen as a very close second to the UK law in terms of achieving a balance between the protection of central management and the protection of the employer representative group. In addition, once the UK leave the EU, Ireland will be the only jurisdiction left within the EU where employers can run this type of litigation in English. And that point can't be underestimated. As a result, Irish law is becoming the default choice for the majority of US employers that are looking for a new governing law for their European Works Councils. If you have a European Works Council in place and it's governed by UK law, well then you need to make a decision pretty quickly as to what your new governing law is going to be. If it's going to be Irish law, you have two choices. You can appoint the Irish Central Management as your representative agent for the purpose of the directive with immediate effect, in which case Irish law takes over straight away, or you can do so on a conditional basis, in which case the decision doesn't take effect until Brexit actually is implemented, whenever that may be. 
When it comes to implementing this decision, all it actually requires, as far as I can see, is a letter or an email from central management in the parent company to the Irish management, appointing them as the representative agent for the purposes of the directive. If you don't have an Irish presence already, there's nothing in the Irish implementation of the directive that sets out some sort of minimum substance requirements. To me, therefore, it means that all you need to do is open up an Irish entity and identify one or two senior members of management from elsewhere in Europe and appoint them as employees of the Irish company. You don't need to relocate any employees to Ireland, they simply need to be employees of the Irish entity. That should suffice. At the moment, I'm involved with a UK law firm in defending a global technology company before the UK courts in a challenge to its decision to relocate to Irish law following Brexit. By the time that decision comes out, we should have much greater detail around the practical process for setting up this choice. However, for now, on my interpretation of the directive and the Irish legislation, this would seem to suffice. As a result of Brexit, we're already involved in 10 to 15 different projects for employers who are looking to relocate or change their governing law from UK law to Irish law. So it is already an area where we're seeing a significant impact as a result of Brexit. The timing, however, is crucial in this, in that this appointment must be made before Brexit takes effect. I know at this point in time none of us know exactly when that will be, but we do need to keep an eye on it. Because in default of making an appointment, in default of identifying the Irish central management as your representative agent, well then the directive default governing law will kick in, and that means that the employer will be bound by the jurisdiction where it has the greatest headcount. So to go back to my earlier example, That could mean Germany or France if that's where the employer has the greatest number of employees. That is why it's a critical issue for employers to be looking at now. Let me turn now to the second topic for today's review, and that's the impact that Brexit is going to have on Irish employees travelling to the UK and indeed UK employees travelling to Ireland post-Brexit. And to help me with this discussion, I'm joined by my employment partner, Niall Pelly, who also heads up our corporate immigration practice together with Kirsten Turney, a corporate immigration specialist from the same group. So Niall, let me turn to you with the first question, and this is perhaps the most important point of all. To what extent will UK nationals be affected in Ireland as a result of Brexit? Thanks, Brian. Irish and UK citizens are protected by the Common Travel Area. Now, the Common Travel Area is a long-standing agreement between Ireland and the UK, which predates Irish and UK membership of the EU. It protects UK citizens in Ireland and offers them expanded residence, voting and social protection rights. Now, there had been some commentary about the fact that the common travel area is not actually set out in any particular agreement and how that might have a bearing in terms of, for example, the the obligation to have work permits. But the way things stand is that the Employment Permits Act of 2003 requires non-nationals, excluding EEA nationals, to have a work permit in order to work in Ireland. But by virtue of the 1935 Aliens Act, as amended in 1999, I think largely as a consequence of the Good Friday Agreement, the effect of these changes is that a citizen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is not deemed to be a non-national and so falls outside the scope of the requirement to have a work permit. One other point to note, though, is that the the common travel area doesn't necessarily apply to other nationalities travelling between the two jurisdictions. So, for example, a French national travelling from Ireland to the UK may not be able to avail of the same benefits uh, under the common travel area. So the common travel area itself is a bit of a misnomer in that it, it doesn't actually relate to or create 
a common travel area, for example, like the Schengen area. But what it actually does is it just confers uh, reciprocal rights on citizens of Ireland on the one hand and uh, citizens of Great Britain and Northern Ireland on the other. So, Niall, will UK citizens be affected differently irrespective of whether or not there is a deal? I actually think not likely. Both the Irish and UK governments have stated a commitment to protecting the common travel area. In the event of a deal between the UK and Europe being reached, the Irish Omnibus Bill, which has gone through the the House of the Oireachtas at this point, would continue to treat UK nationals the same as EU member state nationals for the duration of a transition period. So, as things stand, likely until December 2020. And uh, Kirsten, in in terms of a a no deal, is that going to have an impact? Yeah, thanks, Niall. So in the instance of a no-deal Brexit, it'll be the common travel area that will ensure that UK nationals have the continued ability to reside and work in Ireland. As you just mentioned, both governments have expressed continued desire to preserve this agreement and ensure that Irish and UK nationals can continue moving freely between the two countries. However, in the instance where the common travel area becomes the main protection for UK citizens in Ireland, the Irish government would still likely need to clarify the situation for UK citizens in regard to certain immigration aspects. For example, this might be how employers should count UK citizens when claiming EEA versus non-EEA employees for the 50-50 rule in applying for employment permits or additionally what rights UK citizens coming to live in Ireland might have in bringing their non-EEA family members to reside with them, particularly where they won't any longer be part of the 2004 Free Movement Directive and able to go through the EU treaty rights process. Thanks, Kirsten, for that. So one last question for you, Niall. Are there any steps that employers should be taking now to ensure that their employees will have the right to work in Ireland? To be honest, at this stage, it's really a case of, of doing what you're already doing in terms of continuing to make sure that employee documentation is kept up to date. So employers should ensure that they have a copy of a passport or birth cert providing UK nationality and therefore the, the right to work in Ireland. But this would equally be the case for, for Irish nationals working in Ireland. So it, it, it doesn't actually create that much of a difference. So Kirsten, let me bring you into this. Are there any new measures in Ireland that companies moving in the wake of Brexit can avail of? Thanks, Brian. The Department of Business, Enterprise and Innovation and the Irish Naturalisation and Immigration Service have been working on a series of policy updates to make the Irish immigration system a bit smoother and more accessible for various parties moving to Ireland. Most recently, the two departments made a joint announcement that as of the 6th of March 2019, spouses or partners of critical skills employment permit holders will have full and immediate access to employment upon their arrival in Ireland. So this is a benefit that dependents of certain employment permits in the United Kingdom were already enjoying and already able to avail of. So this policy change has really made Ireland more attractive as a location for companies moving their employees and families to Ireland. In practical terms for employers, this policy change means that spouses and partners of critical skills employment permits holders will no longer be required to apply for a dependent partner spouse employment permit, which was a separate application process. But the dependent spouses will receive a stamp 1G instead of the previous dependent stamp 3. So the impact of this that companies need to be aware of 
when recruiting foreign nationals is that there are now two types of 1G permissions in Ireland. So previously, the stamp 1G was nicknamed the graduate stamp. And employers typically understood that after one to maybe two years on this stamp, the employee would need to be sponsored for an employment permit in order to continue working for them. However, now dependent partners that are on this stamp will be able to continue renewing their working permission in line with the main employment permit holder for a full five years, at which time they'd then be able to apply for a stamp four. So employers should ensure they understand which type of stamp 1G the candidate they're looking at has, particularly when looking to hire for longer term positions. So they're able to set more realistic expectations on whether the candidate would need a future employment permit sponsorship or not. This policy is really welcome in Ireland at the moment, not only for the right that it's granting for partner spouses. But there's a lot of hope that this change will help to ease the employment permit processing times because they've essentially eradicated an employment permit type. But it also might help to lessen the demand for appointments at the Garda National Immigration Bureau or the GNIB office as partner spouses will no longer have to do a double registration in terms of coming into Ireland and obtaining a stamp three and then revisiting the GNIB office for a stamp one once their employment permit is issued. Another policy change that Innis has announced, which at the date of this recording has not yet been fully published, is that the process for de facto partners joining employment permit holders will be changing. So de facto partners are long-term cohabitating couples. In terms of joining their employment permit holder partner in Ireland, the process will be converted into a pre-clearance process. And this will help to clarify the status of such long-term partners wishing to move to Ireland before they have to disrupt their home country life. And this is another measure when published that should help to clear up some GNIB appointments since this type of application has to date also required a double registration since applicants receive a temporary stamp while their application is pending and then upon approval have to reattend for GNIB registration. So Innes is set to publish information in relation to how this new process will work moving forward on the 1st of April 2019 which is also the date that the new process will become effective. So it will be effective immediately. Anyone with queries on this can reach out to us and we'll be able to provide some more information once that document has been published. Finally, in the run-up to Brexit, the Department of Business is also finalizing a review of the standard occupational classification system in an effort to update the employment permit eligibility and address shortages for roles that businesses in Ireland have already identified. So this would be looking at the highly skilled eligible occupations list and the ineligible categories of employment lists to see if there are any areas that need to be changed and categories that aren't working any longer. So this process began last fall and interested parties were asked to make submissions during a public consultation process. And those submissions have now been under review by several groups, including the Expert Group of Future Skill Needs and the Skill Labor Market Research Unit. And Minister Humphreys has recently stated that this is currently being finalized and expects to receive proposals from those committees shortly. 
So while it's difficult to guess as to what the particular changes will be in relation to these occupation lists, there is a hope that it will address some of the difficulties that employers are having in meeting employment permit eligibility for roles required for the business, particularly in the wake of Brexit and the companies moving over to Ireland in that context. Thanks, Niall. Thanks, Kirsten, for that. And of course, if anybody is interested in this particular aspect of Brexit and needs more information on this, feel free to contact Niall or Kirsten directly. And now to move to our third topic, and that's the impact that Brexit is going to have on pensions and benefits. If I can turn to Deirdre Cummins, a partner in our pensions and benefits practice, and Jane McKeever, a senior associate in the same practice. So, Deirdre, can you bring us through the main issues that Brexit is going to have for employers when it comes to pensions and benefits? Thanks, Brian. As with everything Brexit related, it is difficult to predict with anything approaching certainty the impact Brexit will have on Irish pension arrangements. Having said that, it is worth remembering that the majority of our pension schemes are domestic, they're Irish resident and they don't have a cross-border element. And therefore, we anticipate that the impact of Brexit on these arrangements can be limited or managed in the context of the Irish pensions arena. But that, of course, will depend on any number of factors and some of these factors will be specific to each particular scheme. So what myself and Jane are going to do is to talk to you very briefly about some of the issues we are seeing across our desk and some of the things we think trustees and employers should be aware of. So the first thing I want to mention is the novation of service provider contracts. And what novation effectively means is just the substitution of one service provider for another under a contract. And how we're seeing this is a lot of trustees and employers have contracts or arrangements in place with UK advisors, for example, custodians, investment managers, financial institutions. And these service providers have relied on being able to passport their services from the UK into Ireland. And when I say passport, all I mean by that is to provide their financial services across Europe under European law. So obviously, when the UK leaves the European Union, the fear is that they will no longer be able to do this. And therefore, what we are seeing is the transfer of these services from the UK service provider to a European branch of the service provider or another European entity within the group. And this is being done to ensure that services will continue without any break, irrespective of the outcome, I suppose, of the Brexit negotiations that are ongoing at the moment. From what we can see of these arrangements, they seem to be structured or contingent on Brexit actually happening. So the agreement does not become effective until Brexit Day. And what I would say to you is that if you are a trustee or an employer and you receive a contract like this, you should take advice to ensure that the change in service provider does not result in any deterioration in the service levels that will be provided to you post-transfer and that the entity to which the services are being transferred has the ability to provide them to you. And just to jump in there, Deirdre, when you're talking about novation agreements and we're seeing a lot of those in the investment space, I think it's fair to say that many pension schemes were hit by the market volatility that we saw there before Christmas. And some of that was connected with the ongoing uncertainty around the outcome of Brexit. That level of uncertainty doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon. And I think it would be prudent for trustees to consult with their advisors. And of course, employers have a big interest in investment performance, too. So they could certainly suggest that to trustees 
And really what they would be looking to do is to review their asset allocation, make sure that they're not overly exposed to things like concentration in UK stocks or stocks that are very exposed to sterling exchange rates. If they are, they might need to look at reallocating some of their investments, possibly updating their SIP, but certainly trying to reduce the risk that is potentially there around Brexit and the various outcomes that we might see there. And just on that point, Jane, late last year, the European Securities and Markets Authority, or ESMA, issued a statement reminding investment services firms in the UK of their information obligations to clients with respect to Brexit. So, for example, if you are an Irish trustee and you're having difficulty getting information in relation to UK investments, that document sets out the minimum information which you are entitled to receive. And that might be useful for some trustees. So the only other thing I wanted to mention briefly is the cross-border piece. The UK pensions regulator interestingly said just in February this year that it did not expect Brexit to have a significant effect in respect of the legislative basis under which UK schemes operate. Similarly, the view of the Department for Work and Pensions in the UK said that there is nothing in UK pensions legislation which would prevent UK pension trustees from making payments into the EU And equally, we don't see anything from an Irish law perspective which would prevent Irish trustees from making payments into the UK. So I think that's just an important piece to note. And the other thing I want to briefly mention are cross-border pension schemes because these have attracted a lot of comment in the pensions Brexit arena and particularly those operated between Ireland and the UK. And I think the first thing to note about those is that there are very few of these in Ireland, and that this point effectively is not relevant to the majority of Irish pension arrangements. But if it is relevant to you, you should note that the Irish withdrawal legislation extends the definition of cross-border pension schemes to include schemes now established in the UK, which are subject to supervisory and regulatory arrangements, at least equivalent to those under the directive. So effectively, this extends the definition of cross-border pension schemes and should facilitate the continuation of the current arrangements. I think the important point to note is that the impact of Brexit will be influenced or determined in this area very much by the extent to which the UK post-Brexit changes or, as one commentator put it, dilutes the current legislative framework in operation in the UK. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Deirdre, for that. That's really interesting and obviously one we'll need to keep an eye on. To wrap up, this isn't like all of our other episodes where at the end of a case review, we can take a look at what this means for you and what steps you should be taking. To a certain extent, we have identified the steps you can take, but this is a moving process with lots of moving parts. And what's more, it changes day by day, as you all know. What we can do is promise to keep you updated as things develop. And if issues come up that we think you need to know about, we'll make sure to let you know. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast.
For further information, visit matheson.com.